It's Thursday, January 27th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Attacks on Ukraine have already begun. Wait, you might be saying, I've been paying close attention. I had not known that. Yes, cyber attacks. A couple weeks ago, users of the country's Security and Defense Council website were greeted in Polish, Russian and Ukrainian, with the words, quote, all information about you has become public. Be afraid and expect the worst. This is for your past, present, and future. It was a clear intimidation tactics, but NATO, the U.S., the Ukrainians know this will be a front if there is a war, and it's looking like there's going to be a war, and the damage could be serious. In traditional wars, armies spend months and lives trying to cut the enemy's lines of communication, transport, potable water. Now it can be done through cyberspace. Such attacks have been done, and the victim of the worst attack on a nation state was experienced by Estonia in 2007. Yesterday, I spoke with that country's president at the time of the attack, and I wanted to bring you an extra bit of that conversation that we had. If you haven't heard the whole thing, go back. It's really good. But today, here's Tumas Ilvis on the threat of cyber. When they write the history of cyber war, uh, or when they write it already now, it always starts with Estonia because it was the first place that experienced sort of the Clausewitzian war as the continuation of policy by other means. Well, that's what happened, was that, you know, we didn't have war with guns and missiles. We just were shut down digitally. I mean, so we went through this and our country was shut down. Since then, we have seen Ukraine attacked multiple times digitally. And I argue that basically in the future, wars will become primarily digital and the kinetic side of things Uh, you know, guns and bullets and missiles will be more part of a mopping up operation than the actual war, because if we just... Yeah, as as reality becomes more digital and less kinetic, yeah. So that, that I think, is something that uh, we should be paying much more attention to. They've already been doing stuff, uh, but, you know, it's it's like digital is the tip of the spear. You're going to mm-hmm. see that first. And then if you see that, then you go, okay, it's going to be coming. And you defend war, you defend an incursion with howitzers. Are the defenses as robust for digital incursions? Um, not really. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, the, you know, the whole area of digital conflict is really rife with difficulties because unlike a kinetic attack, uh, attribution is becomes uh, very difficult. I mean, you will figure it out, right? I mean, you can, if you, I mean, if you, you know, if you know, uh, suddenly Sony is attacked, well, it'll take you a few months to say, yes, it was the North Koreans. I mean, this is right. all of these digital things. You can't, whereas if, you know, if you, well, look at this way, you take, you take down an electrical power plant with a missile. You've seen it, you've seen it come in on the radar. Their debris from the missile is, is there. You can tell who's, whose missile it is. You know where it came from. And you can say, okay, we're going to respond. And basically, you know, the general rule is you respond in sort of proportionally. Okay, the same electrical plant is taken down through a cyber attack. 
Who did it? Was it the was it something we had a problem in there or was it from outside? If it's from outside, who did it? How do we prove it? Well, you know, again, it is not that impossible and you don't need to have 100, you don't have to convince all members of the jury. 80% uh, is already pretty good, but it'll take you a couple of months. So that doesn't really help when it comes to war, right? It's like, because otherwise you could, I mean, if I were Russia, I took out that electrical plant and then the Ukrainians said, you took out our electrical plant. I would say, what do you mean? It was the Iranians. <laughs> It was the it was the North Koreans. It was the Chinese. How can you say we did it? It was your own. It was your own faulty coders on your end. Yeah, yeah. All of that is yeah. possible, and we we went through this when we had our cyber attacks. You know, all kinds of deniability, but you know, ultimately, we I mean everyone knows who did it. But does there need to be a NATO for cyber? Yes, but there certainly needs to be. I mean, NATO in itself is not really good. And, but the fundamental problem with NATO is, is you can find it in its name, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Now, it's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization for 1949 reasons. I mean, the reasons of the year 1949, because defense then was strictly kinetic and it required, it was, you know, what mattered was bomber range, fighter refueling, troop transport, tank logistics, all of that stuff, right? Which is, you know, basically geographically based. Living in the digital era, it doesn't matter anymore where you are. And so uh, NATO doesn't have in its, you know, Australia, South Korea, Japan, because it's not, they are not in the North Atlantic. Now, if you're going to have a cyber alliance then it'd obviously be in there. I mean, North Korea and Japan, let me see, oops, sorry. <laughs> South Korea and Japan are as digitally advanced as you can be, and they're vulnerable, and they can, and they, you know, they follow liberal democratic values, free and fair elections, respect for human right. rights, and all of that stuff that we believe in in the NATO space. But they're not here. They're not, you know, geographically close. But this is why I've been arguing. In fact, I've written articles on the fact that we need a digital digital alliance of a sort of of serious liberal democracies around the world, because in the digital era, distance and mass don't matter anymore. Right, right. The whole idea is who shares a border in, in on the Internet. There are no borders. Everyone shares a border. No one knows you're a dog, but the borders is the more important thing. Right. Glad I could get a famous New Yorker cartoon caption in there, though my favorite caption is, Fuseli, you crazy bastard, how the hell are you? That said, on the show today, in the spiel, Neil Young needles Joe Rogan, what's the damage done? But first, with crime up, the progressive prosecutor movement, like residents of cities across America, is under fire. What happens to the call for more lenient sentencing in a time of increased violence? Emily Bazelon, who writes for the New York Times Magazine, is here to discuss George Gascon, L.A.'s progressive prosecutor, and how the movement in general confronts this murderous tide.
Within the last decade, the idea of the progressive prosecutor took hold and the figure of the progressive prosecutor took office. But the label progressive prosecutor was not to these men and women what the phrase compassionate conservative was to George Bush. These people really lived their ideals. In Philadelphia, Larry Krasner really did lower sentences, limit prosecutions, and set imprisoned men and women free. And he was elected pretty handily. Others face some recall petitions. Chisabudin in San Francisco is the city's first DA to face a recall. That'll be in June. George Gascon of LA County, the beat one, and there are talks of another recall. And if you look at the murder rates in some of these places, it's not hard to see why. Let's take Cook County, Chicago, progressive prosecutor there, Kim Fox, when she came into office. Uh, There were less than 600 murders in Cook County last year, over 1,000 murders. Larry Krasner, the year before he was elected, 315 murders in Philadelphia. It's gone up every year since he's been prosecutor. Now it's 562. But let's be totally fair. Let's look at Memphis. Memphis had 191 murders in 2019, and last year it was 342. But the prosecutor there ain't progressive at all. Emily Bazelon writes about, well, she's written about a bunch of these prosecutors. She recently wrote about George Gascon for the New York Times Magazine and his particular troubles, but we'll broaden it out and talk about how all these progressive prosecutors are progressing. Emily, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for coming on. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Mike. So in the last, this is one thing that you write in your article about George Gascon. In the last year and a half, the work of reform-minded prosecutors across the country has been complicated by a spike in killings. I would say so, but that implies, and elsewhere in your article, there are portions which flat out say that the job of the progressive prosecutor uh, is harder when murder rises, but we shouldn't peg murder on the policies of the progressive prosecutor. Are we sure we shouldn't? Not at all? Yeah, so that's a great question. The reason I would argue that um, blaming DAs who call themselves progressives for the spike in homicides is not warranted is that this is a national spike. I mean, it's all over the place. You mentioned Memphis, but I could reel off like two dozen cities where the DA is anything but progressive and murders are also much higher. So whatever is happening across the country, it does not seem to be tied to this phenomenon of having a DA who tries to put fewer people in prison for mostly, so far, misdemeanors and some low-level felonies, some shorter sentences. But the idea that that is what is leading to the homicide spike, I just don't see it in the data. I mean, there's even a study of 35 cities who've elected... um, progressive prosecutors that has shown that there's been no effect on the crime rate more broadly. Um, So that's including homicide, but beyond that. So that's why I have a lot of skepticism about this idea. Right. Uh, I agree. If you had a scatter plot where they had a perfect uh, score for how progressive a prosecutor was on one axis and on the other axis was the rise in homicides, it would be a scatter plot. It would be all over the place and you wouldn't see a correlation. But that's a little bit different from a question The question of, did progressive prosecutors cause this spike or contribute to it? Probably not. It's a different question from, are they the right ones to address it? So what's the evidence for that? Yeah, I mean, that's another really good question. So I guess one thing I would mention is that 
Um, when Larry Krasner got reelected in Philadelphia last year, he did the best in the communities that were the most impacted by the rise in crime. So the people who really bear the brunt of both crime and prosecution tend to really support these people who are promising to do it differently. And I think that's an interesting lens to think through, especially right now, because one thing about this homicide spike that is different from other times in the last 50 years when the murder rate has been higher in the United States, this time it's more concentrated. So, you know, if you live in an affluent neighborhood and you don't go to the poor part of town very much, the chances that you are going to be a victim remain really low. Whereas if you live in a part of the city that's poor and has more crime, those are the people who are really being impacted by this rise. So, you know, I think that is a vote of confidence from the people who are the most affected that is really worth paying attention to. Right. Chicago had 700 something murders, but really six or seven neighborhoods had almost all of them. And that is true for other cities as well. That's right. And Chicago reelected Kim Fox, who you mentioned earlier. And Kim Fox has to run not just in the city of Chicago, but in Cook County, which includes some suburbs. She does the best within the city of Chicago among But voters. that's also where the vast majority of the murders are taking place. It's an odd, it's an odd dynamic. The people who vote against her are afraid of murders. The people who have murders on their block might be supporting her. Yeah, and I think that has something to do with how crime gets reported, right? So, like, the fear of crime can spread outward, even if you're really unlikely to be personally affected by it. You might not really know that or understand it. Um, and I think also, and this is particular to Kim Fox, who I've interviewed a couple of times, she has an enormous capacity for empathy. She was a victim of sexual assault herself as a child. She's, I think, maybe the best in this group at connecting with people. And it's crucial to remember that people who are affected by um, murder and gun violence tend to be people who've also been victimized. Like there's a huge overlap between perpetrators and victims. And I think she gets that. And I would just guess that has something to do with her electoral success. Well, you know what? She's a good politician and that's a big part of it. And I'm not sure of some, in large part via your reporting, I'm not sure if George Gascon is, um, because part of being a good politician is handling your constituencies. And he came into office and did seem to alienate some people, some stakeholders that he'd have to work with. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, one big question I had from my reporting in Los Angeles, and I should say I did this piece with um, an excellent New York Times national desk reporter, um, Jenny Medina, and she did. She lives in L.A., so I'm, like, channeling her here. But one thing we really noticed was that um, people who've survived crime or been victims of crime had a very mixed response to Gascon. So he has set up a committee of former victims that is advising him. They were fans. Outside of his office, groups that had worked for many, many years with um, victims of um, homicide and gun violence did not feel any real sense of connection to the DA's office and the changes it was making. And he was really disrupting expectations because he was refusing to um, bring 
basically sentences of longer than 20 years against people who were newly being charged, but also people whose cases had come back to the office on appeal. And so then you're taking cases where like the victims have already gone through a trial or testimony or all of the just like real trauma, honestly, of dealing with the criminal justice system after you've lost someone. And then like their idea that this person was going to go away for life was gone. Now, you can argue that we shouldn't have this expectation. It's incredibly punitive. The United States has so many more people doing these super long forever sentences than other countries we compare ourselves to. But disrupting people's expectations takes a psychological toll. And so I think that was part of what was happening in Los Angeles. And it'll be interesting to me to see what happens next, like if there is an adjustment period in which Gascon's policies um, seem rockier for these people who have been affected, but then they get more used to it and they decide that, you know, a 20 year sentence is still a long time. Yeah, I guess every prosecution um, both serves to address a victim, but of course it creates a victim. Uh, You could argue that the prosecuted individual might be a deserving victim. That's what all the prosecutors would say. But it's all a question of uh, victimization balance. And when crime was low and people were looking around their neighborhoods that were so much safer than they were when we sent all these disproportionately a young black man to jail, when people were looking around safe neighborhoods, those were the people who registered as the victims. But now that crime is higher, I think maybe it's registering different with different people. And I don't know if that's psychological. It seems like that is logical. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. There's this very racially disproportionate effect of who goes to prison and who serves for a long time in prison. And when you look at the numbers of black men who get put away, you see a kind of rip to the social fabric and the communities they come from. Now, it's also true, as you know, that young black men are disproportionately victims of gun violence and homicide, too. So, again, you see that overlap there. Um, You know, when I wrote my book, when my book came out in 2019, I had this... Yes, thank you. It's called <laughs> Let's Charged. Plug it. Well, I had this kind of easy line, which was like, look, these progressive DAs are getting elected. The jail populations are going down. The prison number of years are starting to go down in their jurisdictions. And crime is also going down. It looked very win-win for them. And now it's trickier, which is why I said in my piece about Los Angeles that it complicates their job. Doesn't mean they're to blame, but it's a moment in which... um, homicides and gun violence is rising. We have not in the last 50 years in the United States succeeded in decarceration when crime has risen before. And so the big question is whether the voters are going to stick with it. And I think so far we've seen in places like Philadelphia and Chicago, like they are sticking with it. But, you know, there are other places where that that may not um be the case, you mentioned a recall effort against Chase Boudin, who's the DA in San Francisco, and I think that's going to be a big test. I should mention that Chase is a former student of mine. Um, I know him, so I'm um, not objective when I talk about him, but I'm watching that recall effort with a lot of interest. Here's where I get stuck. When you were writing your book in 2019, I remember we talked about the book and I remember even talked about some of the stuff before it went into the book um, because I'm really interested in issues like murder rates and gun crimes. And uh, I'll get to, I'll I'll lay my theory of gun gun crime on you in a second. But 
I do think it was a rather easy choice because the way I thought about it was, well, all these arrows are pointing in a similar direction. So now is the time to try this experiment. Let's see how it works. But sometimes variables change. And I think the progressive prosecutors, it seems like most of them, are saying of this extra variable of murder, well, now we have a bigger hurdle to keep on the same strategy that we've been keeping on. We have this hurdle to surmount. Part of it is explaining to the public or getting around public disapproval, but we still are engaged in the same project. And I wonder if it wouldn't be right, not just for strategic purposes, but for actual efficacy purposes to change some of your project, to change some of your definitions of who you're going to be lenient or merciful to. Yeah, there certainly is a range. Gascon has been more absolutist about um, 20 years or fewer sentences. I mean, I still think that 20 is a long time, but it's not what people have become accustomed to when they talk about putting someone away for life. And you're right that Kim Fox um, does still allow her uh, assistant DAs to seek longer sentences. So I think there is political and symbolic value in that. Um, I mean, it really is like a sort of question of principle. Like, do you just think that um, 20 years is long enough and you're trying to help the community make a basically emotional and psychological adjustment to that number? But yeah, those are the choices they make. And I do think that when DAs retain discretion to make exceptions to rules that are perceived as being lenient, like that probably is smart politics. So the last thing I want to do, maybe selfishly because I live here and my neighborhood has had a few murders, I want to talk about guns in New York. And you wrote about this and you wrote about diversion programs and gun courts. I have come to believe, um, I guess through some fair amount of study, that the the number one reason why New York City's murder rate was so low and still even comparatively continues to be so low, a much safer city than, oh, not even counting Baltimore and St. Louis and Memphis, and you know, a much safer city than I think every other major or mid-major city, is this. If you had a gun in New York, you were going to do jail time. It was swift, certain, and fair. This meant that some people, some of whom you chronicled, sympathetic people who just wanted a gun to protect themselves, and perhaps, perhaps rationally so, they get swept up in this. But the message was, and the reality was, guns equal pretty significant jail sentences, and it really kept crime low. Uh, if other cities, by the way, tried this, they w- it wouldn't be as successful because, you know, if Chicago really tried this, they have all the guns coming in from Indiana and neighboring states, you can't keep it out. But that's what I've come to believe. And it's in some ways not progressive. <laughs> in some ways, it's a little harsh. Like we're going to send an 18-year-old to jail for over a year and that might have terrible effects on his life. But damn it, don't carry a gun. But you've studied it so long. Just tell me where the facts of this are, because I know that both of our hearts can break for kids um, or anyone who feels they're sucked up in this cycle. But do the fa- are the facts on my side with this conclusion? I mean, it's a little tricky. Here's what the studies clearly show. The studies clearly show that a mandatory minimum prison sentence for gun possession, not using the gun, having the gun, that those mandatory minimums, so like across the board blanket policies, are not associated with lower gun crime. Um, 
One thing I think it's important to keep in mind is the difference between civil gun licensing restrictions and criminal penalties. So everything you just said about New York, where you're attributing sending people to prison for gun possession, um, I would say also has to do with the fact that it's really hard to get a gun permit in New York. That's an Mm -hmm. important way that New York has kept the level of gun possession relatively low. There's still a lot of guns in New York, but you're totally right that when you compare it to a place like Chicago, where everyone just goes right over the border to Indiana to buy, it's lower in New York. And so one thing I'm really concerned about is that the Supreme Court in um, reviewing a New York gun regulation this year is going to just drive a truck through the ability states have to regulate um, gun licensing. And, you know, we are awash in guns in this country. That is like 100 percent true. It is also true that cities and states that have tried to impose more restrictions on having a gun tend to have lower um, rates of death by suicide and by homicide. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine and the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. Emily, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. If you are listening to this podcast on any service other than Spotify, you will learn from this segment. You will come away, I hope, better informed as an outside observer. But if you are inside Spotify, then you will experience right now something you can't hear anywhere else in your ecosystem. Consider this an audio Berlin airdrop. And I bring you this content thanks to the skill I acquired in the space that an 11th month sabbatical provides. And by skill, I'm clearly overstating things. And by sabbatical, I clearly do the opposite as I reach over and grab my guitar. Oh, how blessed you are. Here we go. Now, let me put down the axe, which is something that Neil Young is not saying in his stance against Spotify. That was, of course, Neil Young's heart of gold, or if you are one of Neil Young's lawyers, of course not heart of gold. Did you hear it? You call that an E minor? I barely matched any of the notes. That, by the way, is my advice to any artist who's facing a plagiarism charge. George Harrison estate, pay close attention. Robin Thicke, your blurred lines wouldn't have had to pay out to Marvin Gaye if you just played the song badly. Or what if I restricted all my commentary on the gist to the four songs I barely know how to play? Amassed within Ukraine, an international coalition, a veritable... Seven Nation? Meh. Lest the show devolve into an excessive hot cross buns analysis, let us stick to the words. So back to Neil Young. He requested his music be removed from Spotify if the streaming service kept airing the Joe Rogan show which is like boycotting Bravo if they continue to feature subjects who've had Botox. The problem to Neil Young is that Rogan is a super spreader of misinformation about the COVID vaccine. So let's analyze this. Let's start with the practical, move on to that which is substantiated. Some claims of fact need to be adjudicated, and then we got to get to the bigger picture. So practically, Joe Rogan is not leaving. 
Neil Young does get millions of listeners, but that number does not warrant Joe Rogan getting the boot in favor of Mr. Young. Neil Young isn't even the most listened to Neil on Spotify. He gets 6.1 monthly listeners. Neil Diamond gets 6.7 million. He's not even close to the most popular Young. Young Thug has 27 million monthly listeners. Add in Young MC, Young the Giant, the Fine Young Cannibals, Dennis Young of Sticks, Spotify will get by without Neil Young. And I know Neil Young will remember. Spotify don't need him around anyhow. But so what? Young is taking an ethical stance. But is it? Is it ethical? To judge, first we have to evaluate his thesis. Quote, with an estimated 11 million listeners per episode, JRE, the Joe Rogan Experience, which is hosted exclusively on Spotify, has tremendous influence, Young writes. Spotify has responsibility to mitigate the spread of misinformation on its platform. Does Joe Rogan spread misinformation? Well, here's a clip from a couple of weeks ago when he had podcast host Josh Zepps on the show. I don't think it's true that there's an increased risk of myocarditis from people catching COVID that are young versus increased risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. No, there is. There's both. Well, let's look that up because I don't (laughs) think that's true. It is true. Depending on how you look at it, Joe Rogan spread misinformation or Joe Rogan allowed a guest to correct his misimpressions or I spread Joe Rogan spreading misinformation. But there are times when Joe Rogan's guests haven't corrected the misinformation and there are times alarming to some science educators when Rogan's guests are purveyors of misinformation and Rogan isn't fact checking them because he essentially believes them. It's also true that Spotify has thrown off a bunch of podcasters who are aggressively spreading lies. But it's also true that if the Joe Rogan show were to be a major source of your COVID information, you would be exposed to a good deal of information that is not backed by experts in the field. However, that's not the only consideration in what Neil Young is proposing. There is the issue of one entertainer telling a platform to silence another entertainer because of the information purveyed. Sometimes such a position would be right. If there were uh, a white power show and artists objected to the presence of that, that would be a righteous stance. But the implications of shutting up Rogan are not so clear because Joe Rogan is an entertainer. He even says, don't listen to me, I'm an idiot. And he goes down rabbit holes that sometimes turn out to be larded with landmines. Yes, he absolutely has given voice to inaccuracies, but so has CNN and the CDC and the WHO. Of course, the responsible media and health groups are trying their best to get it right and correct themselves. Well, maybe I shouldn't say of course. I think that is the case. And Rogan has far different standards and directives. I would hate if many Americans base their opinions solely or mostly on Joe Rogan. I think he might too. But I also would hate if Joe Rogan were corporately censored because listeners take the comedian who has some far out theories too seriously. As a thought experiment, I turn the tables. What if Rogan called for the censorship of Neil Young, him or me? Well, first of all, Rogan's call might go further. It might work. But you'd have to say, I know what you're saying. Oh, what? What, what has Neil Young ever said to get him censored? Oh. Young put out an album in 2015 called The Monsanto Years and funded a documentary criticizing GMOs. One song on the Monsanto years, People Want to Hear About Love, mentions supposedly verboten topics like people don't want to talk about the Chevron millions going to pipeline politicians. People want to hear about love. Don't say Citizens United has killed democracy. People want to hear about love. You get the structure. And then he lays this one on us. Don't say pesticides are causing 
autistic children. So Neil Young is an entertainer who spread misinformation about pesticides and autism. Interestingly, a subset of the anti-GMO crowd greatly overlaps with the anti-vaccine crowd represented most acutely in the person of Shiva Ayodhore. We have the pleasure of having Dr. Shiva Adore here today to explain the latest developments in the field of science independent... That was Neil Young introducing Ayurdure at a pre-concert press conference to spread information or misinformation about the effects of GMOs. In 2015, Ayurdure took his skepticism of mRNA, married it to the latest usages, and now, according to Politico, is, quote, pushing a variety of claims that range from dubious to medically disputed to outright false. He has argued that a strict vitamin regimen can prevent and treat the coronavirus. Hello, Joe. And he claims Fauci, Anthony Fauci, is a deep state plant hell-bent on forced and mandatory vaccines to support, quote, big pharma, a claim for which there is no evidence. This is Neil Young's platforming, a pseudo-expert whose critiques fit Neil Young's own worldviews, but are wildly out of step with medical consensus and truth. It's not what aboutism, what I'm doing isn't. Neil Young's past inaccuracies don't add validity to any of Joe Rogan's current claims, but they do offer a lens of how to look at when an entertainer, an informer, a speaker says things that aren't true. I remember an appearance on Colbert when Neil Young was criticizing GMOs, sometimes accurately, sometimes not, and I thought, eh, that is what certain activists do. You generally speaking gotta let activists be active. People shouldn't solely rely on Neil Young for their GMO information. By the way, some of the Monsanto stuff was spot on, but there was there were elements that clearly weren't. But by the same token, or even by a more important token, no one should demand that Neil Young's music or expression be stifled. Unless the argument is, hey, let's just go with whoever has the better point right now for the issue we feel most strongly about in the moment, I really can't understand what the principle would be that says, silence Joe Rogan, not Neil, or silence Neil Young, not Joe Rogan. I I say don't silence anybody, save for opinions so wildly dangerous they can't really even be considered, shouldn't even be put forth in a pluralistic country. I guess the shut up Joe Rogan crowd would say that that description applies, but I don't think it does. I think the dangers of purges and counter purges do not outweigh any supposed benefit. But here's the wrinkle upon the wrinkle. I always got one of those. I don't really fault Neil Young. I love Neil Young. I love his music. I love his thinly veiled hatred of David Crosby. I love all his passion. As a non-Southern man, I do need him around anyhow. Turn it down. I know. Neil Young has the right to say, I don't want to appear on a bill with another performer. I don't want to appear in a stable of performers. I have the right to disassociate. I tend to believe he knew his call to Nix Rogan would go unheeded, but by framing it as he did, Rogan or Young, not both, that's a quote, he wanted to maximize the attention he got. So what Spotify needed to do was say, okay, Neil, we understand, we choose Rogan. And they did. To do so otherwise would be another example of a pretty common phenomenon of the worst of two competing virtues winning the day. And it's getting old. Nailed it.
The Gist was produced by Joel Patterson. Just, just him. Michelle Hunter is head of HR for Peachfish Productions. I should be a guest. I shall be a guest on the Political Gab Fest, probably up now as you hear this. MikePesca.com is a repository of two or three recent interviews I gave explaining the events that gave me the time to learn guitar. The show is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. The Gist. Oomperu Deperu Duperu. And thanks for listening.